We also think who sits around the table matters because we all connect or don't connect with other people. Everybody's lived experience opens the door to different problems and therefore different opportunities. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. I feel like I'm always interviewing best-selling authors or brilliant people that are writing books. And here it is again. This one's called Closing the Equity Gap, Creating Wealth and Fostering Justice in Startup Investing. And the authors are insanely brilliant. It's Frida Kapor Klein and Mitchell Kapor. For those of you who don't know who they are, Mitchell, better known as Mitch, is an American entrepreneur best known for his work as an application developer in the early days of the personal computer software industry. Later, he founded Lotus. You can look it up. It was instrumental in developing the Lotus 123 spreadsheet. And after that, he went on to do a lot of other things. He was also the chair of Mozilla Foundation. And his wife is an American venture capitalist, social policy researcher, and philanthropist. Together, they've formed and partnered to create this Kapor capital. This is a dynamic conversation. We talk about culture. We talk about capitalism. We talk about actually bridging this equity gap, you know, financially, mentally. Dive into this conversation with me. And if you can, pick up the book. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, Success Magazine podcast. And today I've got Frida Kapor, Klein, and Mitch Kapor, welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. We're delighted to be here. Thanks for doing this. Let's talk about Lotus because we were talking a little bit about it at the beginning. This is where where you all met, but you were diving into it, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Tell tell the audience about Lotus and the whole journey. Sure, happy to. Well, this is in the earliest days of the personal computer industry, early 1980s, and. I started this company, Lotus, and it made a spreadsheet, Lotus123, which was the killer app of its day. It's the reason people went out and bought IBM PCs. It's the reason PCs went on to desktops in business all around the world. So with that unexpected and big success, my aspiration was to make Lotus the most progressive employer in the U.S. And in fact, that was Frida's, the job description for which uh, she was hired to come to the company. Wow. That's a pretty big claim right there from the very beginning. It's like, Frida, this is your job. You're going to make it the most progressive company in, in the United States, in the world. And how did you take that on, Frida? What did you think of that idea? I thought the idea was terrific. It was the only corporate job I was excited about. I was just finishing my PhD. Uh, in social policy and research with a focus on employment policy. I had done a doctoral dissertation on sexual harassment in 1984. Whoa. 20,000 research subjects, 10,000 men, 10,000 women. 
And so I was very interested in organizational culture, in workplace culture. How is it that it brings out the best and not the worst in us? Uh, And so Lotus was uh, recruiting me as I was finishing my PhD. And I thought, this is worth pursuing. Someone who had a history as an activist. I used to, I, I don't tell any of the young people in our scholarship programs this story, but I used to cut middle school to go picket for the farm workers in the height of Cesar Chavez's organizing the lettuce boycott and the grapes boycott. Uh, And then in high school, we formed a student union and my oldest friend in the whole world were still friends 60 something years later. We were the only two high school girls who joined a women's consciousness raising group of college women. I have a long history of sort of a social justice, racial justice orientation. And I thought how wonderful to be able to bring that lens to a corporate setting. Yeah. You don't usually see that in a corporate setting. It's like they, they seem to leave that either out completely or an after, thought for something that it's like oh okay i guess we need to do something about it okay let, let's let's put a group together and, and kind of deal with it that's what we typically see right well in fact what we usually see is what i often refer to as performative nonsense so it is what happens after some tragedy after george floyd is murdered uh after some product failure after a lawsuit we don't see the kind of proactivity that Lotus evidenced in the early 1980s. We want to try to create this from the beginning, not as an afterthought and not as a sideshow either. I like that. You know what it's for me, as, as I interview different people, it's to me, it's reminiscent of what the medical field is now shifting into which is preventive medicine it's almost like you're working with with preventive practices uh, way before there's a problem it's like hey, let's not deal with the problem as it happens why don't we deal with it way before exactly right, right. This exactly is, this is not a new insight about human nature an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure but it is novel for the business world it is. It's de- it definitely is because I see it in, in different conversations. For you, I want to go to you first. Why? How did you get involved in all this? Why care? Like, where, where, did the, where did the care come from? The care comes from who I've always been and a little bit of family history. Um, so uh, I'm Jewish. As Mitch says, we're both Jewish on our parents' side. Um, we're not particularly religious, but Culturally, it matters a lot. And many of my aunts and uncles were murdered, and I never met them um, in the pogroms of Russia when my grandparents were trying to escape. Uh, And so I grew up with a steadfast belief that none of us are free until all of us are free. And the people that worked hard to save my grandma. Um, I need to be that person to help save whoever is the target of bias and discrimination and hate in my lifetime. 
It's great reasoning. What about you, Mitch? I mean, why start this at Lotus? Where'd that come from? So I was a tech nerd long before it was cool, long before there was an internet. And so grew up isolated, not terribly well socialized, really an outsider, uh, an informed part of my big part of my core identity growing up and in school. And so with Lotus, there was really an opportunity to create a kind of culture where people like me, people who feel they didn't fit in, actually did fit in, where they were welcome to come as they were. They were accepted in their own terms. As long as they could contribute to the work and to the mission, you could be however you want to be. And that was my idea of something really great to do with this opportunity that landed on us. So it was a kind of a feeling that came from my own lived experience early on, which under you know, Frida's influence as our lives have come together over the decades has really matured into more of a you know, consistent worldview and understanding that there are entire groups of people who are structurally disadvantaged by the virtue of the color of their skin or for other reasons who are, are not included and who are overlooked and underestimated. And so it's really become my mission also to close gaps that prevent those folks from exercising their full potential and from having opportunities. Have you have you continued that with all of the companies you you had influence over since Lotus, or how, how did that change and progress? Um, so, in the late two thousands, I was again ramping up my angel investing activity, which I'd been doing since since Lotus. And look, it had a number of other chapters in my life, skipping over them. But Frida and I were had been together for quite a while at that point, and she came to me and said, Mitch, maybe you should think about doing this angel investing more in line with what I know to be your personal values and what you care about. You've already started really doing that with your philanthropy. And I, my first thought, honestly, was, oh, God, if I worry about, you know, um, companies that are having a social impact, I'm going to miss out on all the hot deals. And so when I hear other entrepreneurs say this now, I you know, have a kind of rueful smile of recognition. But in my case, so first of all, Frida, as you'll see, can be very persuasive. <clears throat> and second, we're both very empirical. We're committed to finding out what the evidence says. And I was willing to give this a try. And so we embarked on some experiments to try to figure out what it would mean to uh, uh, invest in ways uh, that were, were consistent with, with, with our values. And quickly, the idea of gap closing uh, came to the center. And since it's Frida's concept, I should let her talk about what that is and how that became the central pillar of our whole approach to investing. It sounded like it was it was her idea. It was like, Mitch, we got it. We got to do this. And you're like, okay. And she's like, we have to do this now. <laughs> well, she has a sense of urgency. And you've heard about her lifelong mission and activism. I am receptive. I love her. I want to make her happy. She is a smart, insightful, brilliant person. But I had my own process to go through because I'm a very committed uh, entrepreneur. I have been at the forefront of tech trends from the rise of the PC, the rise of the internet and streaming media and open source and virtual reality and you know now artificial intelligence. So I had to figure out how to 
make what she was presenting work with my entire world and my decades of experience. And, and, and it has. That's the amazing thing. All right. So, Frida, and I'll, I'll probably come back to AI later on just because it's a hot topic. But, Frida, closing the gap, like the the book, which which I started reading, but by the way, I have I have not finished it. So addressing these inequalities that it's so clear to see now that like the media is now just I feel like they're using a lot of them as clickbait without truly making a difference into like how you are. But mm-hmm. addressing these these inequalities, how how do we use the the groundbreaking technology to do this? How how have you thought about doing this? Because it, you guys make such an interesting pair. It's like this is so cool to see. Well, thank you. Um, so I also love technology. I'm not a technologist, but what I love about technology is the power to scale anything and everything. And so, if you use technology for good, you can make positive outcomes, and in our parlance, gap-closing, widely available. So, for instance, whether it's education or healthcare or financial services or climate change, whatever issue you're addressing, if you start with what technology allows, you can reach many, many more magnitudes of people. And that's what's fabulous about it. And so we have since 2011 at Cape War Capital and the book, Closing the Equity Gap, tells the story of our first decade investing with a gap-closing lens. So what that means to us is we only invest in tech startups. So it has to be tech, has to be early stage, but the core business has to close gaps of access or opportunity or outcome for low-income communities and or communities of color. We're not looking at an add-on. We're not looking at, oh, once I make a bunch of money, where am I going to give it away? We're not looking at a Tom's Shoe model, buy one, give one away. Because all of those things, whether it's philanthropy or whether it's buy one, give one away, those things can be changed in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. We're looking for businesses where gap closing is actually baked in. And Can you give me me an example of that? Because I I know people are thinking like, okay, what what does that look like company-wise? What should they be doing that makes the difference that you're looking for? Well, one company that's based in Fresno. So first of all, being open to invest in a company, in a tech company coming out of an unlikely place like Fresno, uh, two Latinx founders, co-founders, Jake and Irma. Irma's an engineer. Jake's a lawyer by training. They're both from Fresno. They created something called Bitwise Industries. And what they do is they take Cities like Fresno, cities they define as underestimated and build tech ecosystems. Their great insight is that the barriers for people coming out of farm worker jobs or retail jobs or factory jobs into good careers in tech, the barriers aren't talent. 
the barriers aren't about willingness to work hard. The barriers are about daily life gets in the way. Mm. If you don't have childcare, if you don't have transportation, if your family is food insecure, you can't possibly focus on learning a new career. So they take care of all those things. Bitwise pioneered paid apprenticeships for any number of good jobs into tech. They will provide childcare if you need it. They'll pick you up and take you to school if you need it. They'll drop off food for your family if you need it. And six months later, if you come into Bitwise, and let's say you're training to be a Salesforce administrator or training in cybersecurity, depending on the length of the program, six months plus later, you've doubled your salary. You came in making 30 Five thousand a year. You come out having been paid the whole time. You come out and you get a seventy thousand dollar a year job. They are they are now in ten locations. They started in Fresno, and people said, "Well, you're from Fresno, so you made it happen there." They went to Bakersfield. They went to Merced. They went to four California cities, and then they went national. They're in Buffalo. They're in Greeley, Colorado. They're on the south side of Chicago. They're in Las Cruces, New Mexico. So all of these places that don't have major tech hubs, and they have transformed the economy of individuals, Mm. of of families, and they've transformed the economy of the whole city. That's so great. What's the name of that company? Bitwise Industries. And uh, Irma has done a TED Talk that two and a half million people have watched. Interesting. I, I now I see what you're what you're talking about here. And where where have you seen the biggest opportunities when you're looking to invest? Is it something like this only, or are there some nuances that that we're missing? Well, here's one of the biggest positive surprises we had when we went all in on gap closing was There are a lot of entrepreneurs across multiple sectors who want to build venture scale businesses with a gap closing uh, focus. It's in ed tech, but it's also in fintech. It's also in health. It's, as you heard with Bitwise Industries, it's in workplace and job creation. uh, And now increasingly, it's in climate and sustainability. So, and This was a segment of entrepreneurs who were being very poorly served by the existing capital markets because they were advised continuously, if you say anything about uh, impact or say anything about uh, diversity in your pitch deck, you'll get shut out right away. So they they took it all out. And as Frieda's observed, if if it's not there, how how can we find each other? So when we came in and planted this gap closing flag, we saw there was this huge latent demand and we were able in a very competitive market among different venture capital firms to have a competitive advantage in working with entrepreneurs who wanted to work with us because we are aligned and that's sort of one of the one of the big secrets of the of 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 our success and should say that we measured our results and over the first decade we were in the top quartile, the top 25% of all venture funds of our size, regardless of 
what their approach was in terms of the financial returns. And this is important because it undercuts this axiom in in the investing world that's just wrong, but says anything you do for social impact is concessionary. It's sacrificing returns. And and one of the reasons we wrote the book is we wanted to tell the stories that back up the result that undermines that piece of mythology. Got it. What do you what have you seen now that you've been doing this for a while and focusing on this gap? What have you seen is the the biggest challenge that most most people or smaller companies face? I think the uh, challenge, the biggest challenge that our successful startups face is getting what's called follow on capital as they grow and they're now dozens of employees and then hundreds of employees and they need $50 million or $100 million to take advantage of the opportunity that they've created, then they run into the the traditional investors, as Mitch was describing, the ones who believe that your job is only to make money. And so that pressure to give up impact or to give up diversity um, is one of the biggest hurdles that our companies continue to face. If I could add something to that, because there is another major class of hurdle as people enter into the system and start their companies, which is that there is a predisposition among investors to consider what's on your resume, your pedigree. Do you have a CS degree from Stanford? Did you go to an Ivy League school? And we think that that's irrelevant. Uh, And in fact, misleading, it may just be that your parents had a lot of money and were able to buy you advantages to get into a good school. Yeah, very true. Again, Frida had a central concept, which we've adopted uh, at Cape Capital, which is of of distance traveled. When we look at talent, we consider where a person started from, wherever that is, and then importantly, how far they have come under their own steam to overcome barriers and hurdles. Uh, and that is a much better indicator of things like resilience and persistence and things uh, uh, that contribute to entrepreneurial mm. success. When you have that lens on on talent, and we do, it's deeply woven in, and we can talk about that to our Yes, our, I want to. You make a different set of choices about who you invest in, and who you invest in looks Ooh. very different than the typical portfolio, and it's it's much more diverse. Frida, that's brilliant. Distance traveled? That's, that's really good. I mean... Yeah, and totally, yes, there is a bias when you look at a resume. It's like Harvard, Stanford, whatever, right? And then you don't see the other ones that have the distance traveled, right? What are what are some things that you're looking for when we have now a, a, a defined phrase here? What does that look like to you? Well, first of all, the notion of distance traveled came to me when I co-founded a scholarship program at UC Berkeley, uh, which is where I went. And Berkeley, unlike the Ivies, uh, is a gateway school. Uh, You know, 40% of students at Berkeley are first gen in their family to go to college. And about the same percentage are Pell Grant recipients, unlike the Ivies, where the overwhelming majority of students at the Ivies 
come from the top income strata of the US. So I remind myself and our founders and our co-investors that we are all accidents of birth. I was speaking recently at a conference and I asked the audience, how many of you chose your parents? (laughs) And we need to remind ourselves that we can take no credit for whether we were born into a family that could buy us all kinds of unfair advantage that was, you know, had tons of books that took us on trips around the world that could give us a $300 an hour tutor. That has nothing to do with who we are at our core. That is about the accident of birth. So what I wanted to do is to really understand, and I learned through these scholars, what daily life looks like if you went to a Title I school. A school, Title I schools are schools where the students are eligible for free or reduced lunch. When you meet students who got into UC Berkeley race blind after Proposition 209 killed affirmative action in public institutions, And they just calmly tell you that every day they make a decision about whether they're going to eat lunch and walk three miles home or whether they're going to skip lunch and be hungry and take the bus home because that is their daily life. We make people feel ashamed about that. Yep. It has nothing, nothing to do with who they are. So one of our founders, for instance, of a highly successful and profitable company, not many tech startups are profitable, is a woman by the name of Phaedra Ellis Lampkins. Black woman started her career as a healthcare organizer. She went, by the way, to Cal State Northridge. That's not a school that would pop up through any resume screening and get her a job at a top tech company. (laughs) That's true. But here she is on top of a rocket ship she built. And the rocket ship she built is based on her own lived experience, her own distance travel. She was one of those students who was at a Title I school who was eligible for free lunch. And at her school, if you were eligible for free lunch, you went and stood in a separate line than the kids who walked in with money in their pockets to buy lunch. It was humiliating, it was scarring, it was life-changing, and it has propelled her to start a company called Promise Pay. And what Promise Pay does is it treats low-income people with respect and dignity. How's that for a concept? And (laughs) Unbelievable that we have to do that, right? It's crazy. Exactly. And so she's treating low-income people with respect and dignity and helping them to pay their overdue water bills or other utilities. And Promise Pay, it works on a phone. You don't have to have a computer. It assumes that you're telling the truth, so you don't have to upload dozens of documents proving that you're poor. And who knows how to upload documents from a phone anyway. Uh, And there are no fees and no interest. What started in L.A. County and Louisville, Kentucky, were two of the pilots. Cities were adopting it, like Newark, 
Now whole states like the state of Virginia are adopting it. What it means is that those municipalities or states are getting revenue they never thought they would get. About 95% of people pay their bills if you treat them with respect and dignity, if you let them set their payment schedule and amount that they can manage. Yeah, they help- you make it, and you also make it accessible for them because the one thing that we forget is that sometimes we don't have time to do it because we're working two, three jobs. And it's like at that point where we have to go on a computer and take time to even figure out where to go and how to do it and wait. Exactly. And what if you don't, what if you don't have Wi-Fi? What if you don't have a computer? Yeah. And so I happen to get a fair number of speeding tickets and uh, in my life, I have things to do, you know, and I have a PhD and I couldn't figure out how to pay my speeding ticket online. Right. So that tells you about how inaccessible simple things have become when you're trying to pay a bill online. Mm. Promise Pay has just busted through that with a founder with a distance traveled story who leverages her lived experience to empathize with her customers. Interesting. I feel like every one of your chapters is like a podcast I could do to interview somebody. It's pretty nuts. Wonderful. We would love it if you did that because (laughs) we are one of the things that's, you know, in this difficult time in this country with all the divisiveness and the economic uncertainty and the worries about deep fakes. One of the things and many of our friends say, how come you're always so optimistic? It is because we spend our lives talking to these kinds of entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. who use the hurdles they were given as opportunities. You know, on that, that's a really good point. The, The focus as you focus on, as you focus on these entrepreneurs that are focusing on this, their focus isn't on like you said earlier, uh, Mitch, you mentioned that as you grow and the follow-up capital becomes a challenge, uh, it becomes all about the money, right? That's the biggest challenge. And then over on this end, it's like they're at opposite ends. They're not focusing on the money. We actually want to make a difference. Mm-hmm. And this is why also people are saying, well, why are you so optimistic? Because you're hanging around people like us. It's like, we we have hope. Like we're we're looking at like humanity at a different level here. So I love that. Where quick question here, just because uh, this is my question. With divisiveness, where, where where do you think that's coming from more now in, in the current atmosphere that we have? Well, let me tell you what I think, and and then also make sure that Mitch weighs in here. So I think one place the divisiveness is coming from, and I would say a huge accelerant, is technology. So before we lived in our little bubbles and we talked to people in our communities, in our churches, in our mosques, in our synagogues, in our community centers, picking up our kids at school, and they were real people to us and we agreed or we disagreed. Or, you know, I don't know how many times I've been to the dog park and I see somebody who's a great dog parent and I find out 
that they have politics the opposite of mine. I have to take into account that they're actually an okay human being. They just think poorly, um, but they're not abusing their dog. I don't have to demonize them. Um, and so I think what's happened is that technology has accelerated and amplified demonizing everybody who doesn't agree with us, regardless of whether you're on the right or the left. Yeah. I would also point out that a lot of people, self-included as to how I grew up, grew up in a kind of bubble that, oh, everything is actually pretty good. You know, the post-war economy, 45 to 75, was all up and to the right. And if you were white and your pathways into the middle class were, were, were wide open, and so it may seem like now that the inequality is growing and it's much more visible due to technology and many reasons, things have gotten really bad. But it turns out if you talk to people who have been excluded all along, who have been outsiders, who have been disfavored immigrants, who have been people of color, who have been you know, gay, lesbian, transgender, it's never been easy. In fact, uh, this sort of uh, divisiveness of the ins and the outs has been a very structural factor for a long time, for centuries in this in this country. We're in a moment now where there is much greater awareness of it. And in a way, that's what makes it hard. And in a way, it also creates an opportunity for action if we move into the sphere of action, not just not just talk. Interesting. That's so true. Mitch, I never thought about it that way before. But yeah, it's never been easy. For a lot of people, right, people of color, and like you said, um, the LGBTQ um, plus community or, or other people. But now, because of tech, everyone is able to see it. And I think, now just thinking through that comment, the biggest challenge is that it's new to a lot of people, so they don't know how to deal with it. And they're in. it's almost like we're in transition to now figuring out, it's like, okay, what's next? How do we, how do we either help? Or continue to just be crazy about it, right? Uh, interesting. I didn't see it that way before. All right. So what does social and economic justice look like to both of you? Well, look, uh, <laughs> we are not anti-capitalism, as many people are. We are anti the kind of capitalism we practice now. We think there's a much better and fairer way to structure the economy and to structure access and opportunity, whether it's to education, whether it's to skills, whether it's to jobs. And that's what we are backing in terms of the companies we invest in and the community of founders that we have created. I like that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm just from talking to you, I don't know, I feel like a sense of trust or very openness. And I mean, I interview a lot of people. I don't often feel that that quickly. So interesting. Wonderful. Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. We we do try, we, we recognize the importance of closing the gap between talking the talk and walking the walk. Yeah. And while we are as full of foibles as the next couple, I think we do pay a lot of attention to trying to have our actions be congruent with what we say. And I think that that actually, uh, you know, makes 
um, a difference. You put your money where you put your money where your mouth is. I think that's what you're saying. (laughs) And, you know, we have lots of other examples of companies in in the book um, that are just doing wonderful things. I mean, one that comes to mind, you, you talked about healthcare before, a company called Health Sherpa. And this is a great story because it was started um, by two people in the Sacramento area. Mm-hmm. And it was in response to how hard it was and what a disaster it was to sign up to, for Obamacare. Mm. So when it first came out, you may remember uh, the legislation was passed. They put up this healthcare.gov website. A ton of people tried to sign up and the website just fell over. Technically, yep. it was radically inadequate and that created a crisis and they eventually fixed it. But the insight of the founders of Health Sherpa was that there could be an easier way. And again, instead of turning to the computer, they went to the phone. Uh, instead of uh, requiring 45 minutes, they targeted and achieved a five-minute process to sign up for it. They used the sort of the best engineering and design practices from Silicon Valley to make this consumer experience for signing up for the healthcare plan as simple and streamlined as possible. And it 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 caught fire. Uh, and so at this point, literally tens of millions of people have used it. And that's because their software powers, other than healthcare.gov, the overwhelming majority of sites uh, from insurance companies and brokers and, 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 and so on that you use to sign up for it, because they understood that you want to close that gap of access. Here is this. Now we are expanding healthcare, which everybody should be able to have, but you actually have to reduce the friction so that people can can sign up and have a good experience. And this is this is what they've done. It's been a you know a quiet, raging success for a number of years. I like that. Uh so now with artificial intelligence jumping into the picture at a at a completely different level, right? It's just so rapidly increasing. And I'm thinking now of Health Sherpa, how it how it just made the process so much easier, right? How then can we look at AI with more of a hopeful look at it and say, how does it bring or help the social economic justice? Well, that's a great story. And we're right in the middle. We wrote to our founders and said, who is using AI, real generative AI, new tools uh, to power their core gap closing business? And so one story I can tell you is a company called Numerade. And they're an online tutoring company they, I was just looking for the numbers here. They are tutoring for STEM, science, technology, engineering, math courses. So wow. they, they put up video answers to all of the commonly used textbooks in public schools, and they're moving into colleges as well. And I was just looking for the numbers here. I think I remember. You remember? Well, it went from 3 million. It took them... Three was it three years? I'm going to look this up. Three years to do uh, about three million videos, so they begin to cover 
the territory. But using generative AI, they were able to synthesize high-quality mini-video lessons of 80 million of them in a couple of weeks. So very comprehensive coverage of every subject at every level, textbooks and questions, and Mm -hmm. only could be done this way. So what we're seeing is in these interviews that I'm, I'm, I'm having so much fun talking to founders about this. They are figuring out how to apply generative AI in creative ways to weld it into the core of their product offering to do more, to do better. I can give another example. Yes, um, please. There's a company that provides um, uh, services to families who have uh, uh, children on the spectrum, uh, who are neurodivergent uh, uh, kids. Uh, They provide a number of things, including online counseling. Now, any given counselor um, may be an expert in dealing with one or two kinds of issues, but they're not necessarily going to be familiar with the entire range of issues of anything that could come up in a family. What uh, the company, which is called Divergent, D-A-I, Divergent, has done is it has used generative AI, well, to do two things. One is to create expert guides on pretty much every subject that a family could bring up because they collect all the data and they throw it into the large language model. I mean, technologically, it's totally fascinating. I won't get into the details of that here. But now, when the counselor is on the phone and the family names the topic, if it's not a topic they're an expert on, they just can type in a few words and they get a curated, high-quality, step-by-step guide of things to think about, things to do. Oh. And it's, it's, it's quite amazing. But they've taken it even further. They used um, uh, chat, G, not chat GPT, G, GPT, the yeah, to create a training app to train counselors because there are best practices about how you, uh, and I've seen a couple of companies do this, not just them. There are best practices, there are rules uh, to follow. And they've done this amazing thing without actually writing any of the code. I'm a software developer and I know how much work it would take if they simply describe the guidelines and Mm -hmm. then they run an interactive session where the computer generates questions and the counselor in training responds, they get accurate feedback. It can tell, are they on the mark, off the mark? How could this response be better? I mean, this would take person years of effort to develop this in a conventional way as a piece of software. And they were able to do this in in, in weeks. And so I'm seeing a revolution in how software will be developed, how you can target it for your core needs. And for our companies, which are focused on gap closing, they are going to directly apply it to the communities uh, that that they are serving. That's awesome. I have, I pulled up the numbers. Yeah. I can give you a specific example. So yes. you can go back to Numerade, doing online tutoring. They do this for about $10 a month. And if you think about that makes tutoring accessible instead of the $100 an hour and up that many tutors charge. So all of a sudden, tutoring in science, technology, engineering, and math courses is widely available. If, Amazing. 
if parents didn't have, didn't graduate high school, they're unable to help their kids with homework. Yeah. But, well, even, so, even if they did, in some, <laughs> cases, in some cases we can't. Okay. In some cases we did. Exactly. So for, for parents who don't remember their math, whether they took go. it or not, um, and you want to be able to help your kid, and you can do that for $10 a month unlimited, you can't do that for $100 an hour. So Numerate went in to close that gap of accessible tutoring. And here's how they've used AI. So the company took four years to create 3 million textbook answers. Now, AI is powering the system and they've created 80 million answers in two weeks. Wow. Mind-blowing. That is, so that is that is AI for good. Yeah, that's definitely definitely is. I can also see how that that creates in a if we're looking at AI just in the near future with Numerade, we can easily say, well, it's actually a tutor. You can ask it questions and it could use kind of like a Socratic method and question you back and be like, let's get to this together. Right. Exactly. This is that's brilliant. What people are doing. Yes, exactly. And so think about that applied to every problem in education. Think about that applied to healthcare. Think about that applied to financial services. Help me choose the best mortgage. Well, help me help me write a contract, right? Help me. It, can you yeah. take a look at this this thing over here? What am I missing? Can you help me write a request for repairs for real estate, right? Buying a home. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I, just heard, I heard this interesting example of college professors being very worried about, well, now they're going to have to give in-person exams where the kids have to go back to writing in the blue book in, you know, in the auditorium because they're worried well, about chat GPT. So the college professors were bemoaning that. But then one of them said, well, you know what? We can use chat GPT to write all those letters of recommendation. <laughs> So, which is already happening, which is so good. Yes, He's going so, into the weekend. It's like so good. That's right. It's, you know, you can use it to speed up any process, whether that's ultimately a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Chapter 10. I have not gotten there. Okay. But I did, I did look, look at the table of contents and it's lessons learned. Uh, I want to, I want to touch on that now as we close. If I go to let's go to Mitch, you first. Lessons learned. What do you what do you think of now? Because now since the book has been published, you probably have done other things too and getting into other things. What what comes to mind when you're thinking lessons learned? Well, what comes to my mind is this is a different way of thinking about investing. Uh it's not a quick fix. But when you combine the concepts of gap closing as to in the core of the business and you change your view of uh, talent to be about distance traveled, not about pedigree, and if you think about applying those concepts to every stage of the investment process, how you source deals, how you make investment decisions, and how you support companies then it's really, it's a paradigm shift. It's a new world. And it really, the lesson learned is that, you know, um, it works. But I would say the second important 
lesson for me has been that of the importance of holding up a mirror and looking at yourself and your team as objectively as possible, see where you're starting from, see what ideas you may have that you didn't know that introduce uh, bias or distortion into the process, and have a willingness to take yourself on and start by making small changes uh, that lead you in a different direction. Because uh, this is like um, a cookbook or something where you can pick up off the shelf all of a sudden, I'm just going to do gap closing investing. You, it's, a, it's a process of, of, of growing into it. And I think you've got to be patient with yourself in a team. You've got to hold each other accountable and you need to, you know, need to work with each other over a period of time. And then amazing things can happen. I like that. How about you, Frida? Well, I think the notion of gap closing needs to be baked in, not just to an investment decision, but to every aspect of how the organization functions. And so if you ask the question in the investment context, who benefits if this company succeeds? And is, and is anybody left behind? Does this widen the gap between haves and have-nots in any particular dimension? And as we said at the beginning, we, we think we need to be thinking about capitalism that is inclusive, that benefits everyone impacted by the business. That means customers, employees, suppliers, communities, as well as shareholders, not just the folks with money. We also think who sits around the table matters because we all connect or don't connect with other people. Everybody's lived experience opens the door to different problems and therefore different opportunities. And if we don't have a great array of lived experience, and distance traveled stories around the table, we're going to miss really great business opportunities. Very so true. one of the things that, that we've done in one of the chapters talks about, Mitch and I have stepped back from being the general partners of Cape War Capital, mm-hmm. and we've handed the reins to our two younger partners, Uliliana Vakpuri and Brian Dixon. They've both been with us for more than a decade. They're both black. They're decades younger than we are. Uh, They've been making the majority of investment decisions with us for many, many years. Uh, Interestingly enough, Ulili was in that undergraduate scholarship program I described. So we've known her since she was a high school senior, and we hired her when she graduated UC Berkeley. And she came to us because of that cohort experience She came to us early in her tenure and said, can I start a summer associates program? And we said, what a great idea. And Brian Dixon was the first summer associate hired. And they are now the co-managing partners for capital. It's, It's a story very much like in the olden days we used to talk about people who started in the mailroom and went all the way to CEO. Uh, And that's the kind of story we have here. And they're fabulous investors. 
And they went out and raised $126 million, making it one of the largest Black-led venture capital firms. And I'm sure they're going to take it in, in new places, but their core belief is also about gap closing. And their lived experience is different than ours. Um, and they'll bring their insights to a whole new crop of founders. I love this. Where do we find out more about Cape Or Capital? Just go online? CapeOrCapital.com tells you a lot about the investment criteria, companies in the portfolio. Uh, you can see who's on the team. You can see some of the some of the things we've done over the years. What are some of the objections that you typically get from people that don't understand what you're doing? Well, I think it's uh, the major one is one that Mitch addressed earlier, which is the myth that investing for impact or investing for diversity means get lower financial returns. Yeah, money. Completely, completely a myth. Um, and we've proven it and others have proven it. You know, the kinds of things are, oh, this founder isn't going to succeed. Their accent is too heavy. I mean, there's still a kind of bias and reflexive wow. suspicion of, uh, you know, of, of talent that uh, continues to pop up. So I would also assume that some people say, what gap? What are you talking about? Well, right. Exactly. Uh, and, and some people just don't. And some people well, think we solved racism. And, and and that's not a current issue, which so. Well, I was going to say, case in point, when we the book was published as we speak a month and a half ago, and mm -hmm. the, we put out some tweets, and one of the tweets led with something that I think is universal and not controversial, which is that talent is evenly distributed or genius is evenly distributed by zip code, but opportunity is not. So it went up in my Twitter feed and Elon Musk took it on and uh, and brought out his, his haters. And it got just caught in this um, pool wow. as happens in, uh, you know, in Twitter. And it is a reminder of how difficult it is in today's environment to bring ideas out without sort of triggering this political, not anarchism, but uh, uh, atmosphere that is about anything other than finding common ground and finding the truth. And so we are, there is, and that segment is very vocal now and, and, and online. And so we run into that, oh, you're just woke. I'm done here. Interesting, huh? That's how we close things out saying, oh, and then we just move on. Interesting. Right. But that cultural divide, I think, is is a huge obstacle to having a robust conversation about what's wrong with traditional thinking about investing and how it can be improved. Yeah. All right. To close out, what's that cute little doll behind you guys? What what is that little cute thing? Oh, there are three. There are three dolls. They're from the International Folk Art market in Santa Fe, where I went years and years ago. Uh, they're all African dolls. And there are only, only a couple of them there. I don't think I can get very far with my headphones on because our, our dog, who's out with her friend now, when the dog gets bored when we're on Zoom, knocks them over. <laughs> what kind of dog do you have? What is it? She's, she's a rescue uh, doodle. 
Bummers. Okay, cool. Nice. Yeah, they, they get excited and they're very happy and nice. I yeah. love it. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, Frida, Mitch, thank you so much. This was great. A lot of great insight on my part. And I love the conversation. And you you need to talk about this a lot more because you're going in the right direction. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for your enthusiasm and making it so easy. And if you want introductions to any of the founders we talked about or any of the founders in the book, just let us know the right time. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it. Oh, 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 o